So have you ever been disturbed? Disturbed. Now, I'm not talking about disturbed in a, in a mental way. You know, like you rake the yard three times a day. Or you kind of dust off and, and wipe off the dirt from the hood of your sports car three times an hour. Or that you watch all three seasons of BJ and the Bear three times a week. All right? we're, we're not talking about being disturbed like that, which technically, BJ and the Bear was a fantastic show. No, no, we're talking about a different kind of disturb. We're talking about when someone or something disturbs your peace. When, when your peace is disturbed, when your peace is interrupted. The last four months, there have been a lot more people who are having to work from home. And in that time, there has been an increase in do not disturb and do not enter signs on the doors of makeshift home offices. Uh, Here are just a few that I came across. One sign says this, do not disturb from 8 a.m. to 5.30 p.m. unless it is an emergency. Emergency, the house is on fire, your arm fell off. Not an emergency, my brother hit me or my sister hit me. Yeah, good good disturb sign. Or maybe you saw this one from the lawyer in London. Very official, very thorough sign. It begins this way. Important notice directed to all inhabitants. Your mother is not here. The thing you think you see in this room is not your mother. It can perform no parental functions at the time being unless such parental functions are required by reason of medical emergency. Medical emergency defined as extreme pain or any episode of bleeding for more than three minutes. Good note, and then she noted this. For the avoidance of doubt, hunger is not a medical emergency. Good word. And then there's one that provide a little multiple choice option. Reads like this. Mom is in a meeting. Do not enter. The answer to your question might be piece of fruit. Upstairs. In the wash. In your room. I don't know what's for dinner or no. Some of you moms are smiling and laughing. You've been there. You feel their pain. But you know, you don't have to be a a mom to have your peace disturbed. You don't have to be a mom to have your peace interrupted. In fact, for most all of us, life has become a constant disruption of peace. Our our peace is being interrupted and disturbed on a constant basis. So, what do we do? What do we do? What do we do when our, our peace is disturbed? What do we do when we can't seem to find any peace when having any notion of of inner peace is just ridiculous we we can't even find it what do you do well there is something you can do there is an answer and we're going to do our best to find out what that answer is listen to psalm 46 beginning with verse 10 cease striving God has been inspiring the psalmist up to this point, guiding his pen, but, but now God is intervening and, and the quotation marks there at the beginning of C show us that this is God speaking directly. God has, has decided to say something strategically to us. 
And what does he say? He says, cease striving. Or as some Bibles translate it, be still. Be still. Now somebody might say, be still. <laughs> Forget it, man. I'm, I'm tired of being still. I'm ready to, to get back out there and get on with my life. I don't want to be still anymore. Well, being still like that is, is not what God's talking about. He's talking about something different here. The, the language here for cease striving, the language here for be still, is kind of like this. Lay down your weapons. Lay down your weapons. That's the, the picture of what it's saying. So, so what does that mean to lay down your weapons? Well, there's a couple of different ways that we could see that, and both of those ways involve the whole story here. So Psalm 46 is written from the perspective of the psalmist, and the psalmist is someone that knows war. They have experienced firsthand war, war where a nation was fighting against a nation to gain freedom or to keep freedom. So the psalmist understands war. The psalmist is also writing from a perspective because they have seen social injustice. They've seen violence. They've seen government corruption. They've seen pandemics. They've seen plagues. They've seen hardship of so many ways. And he's writing from a perspective of someone who has seen all of those things and yet still in the middle of all of those things, he still says to himself, hey, you know what, self? One thing remains. There's, there's one thing that we can keep telling ourselves, and that's this, that God is still our refuge, that God is still our help in this very moment of trouble, and that God at any given second can speak and the whole earth can melt. And if all of that is true, then self, we can trust God. We can trust God. That kind of confidence would remind him and should remind us that no matter what enemy we face, no matter what enemy is against us, there is coming a day when all enemies will have to lay down their weapons. They'll be forced to lay down their weapons. All enemies. And not just our enemies, but we we need to lay down our weapons. What kind of weapons? Listen to this list. Tell me if you hear any of your weapons in this list. Fear, worry, anxiety, aggravation, anger, apathy, pride, arrogance, stubbornness, laziness, procrastination, insecurity, self-centeredness, or exhaustion. Any of those weapons in there? Any that you, you found in there? Because those weapons are weapons that keep us from being still. They keep us from ceasing to strive. Those weapons keep us from God. We could take all of those weapons and kind of put them under one weapon, and that's the weapon of, of self-sufficiency. Self-sufficiency is, is kind of like this. It's when we do our own thing, plus we believe in God. Musical philosopher Thomas Earl Petty sang it this way. She's a good girl, loves her mama, 
Loves Jesus and America, too. She's a good girl, crazy about Elvis. Loves horses and her boyfriend, too. The picture here, lyrically, is that we've got this girl. She loves a lot of things, and Jesus is one of the things that she loves. But the gospel calls us to love Jesus first and most. And so if we're not loving Jesus first and most, almost by default, almost in a way that we can't help, we will have the weapon of self-sufficiency in our hand. It's the the weapon that we'll use the most in life. Now, you can have the weapon of self-sufficiency and still say things like, you know what, this country was founded on Christian principles and and we need to get back to that. Okay, You, you can say that. You can hold the weapon of self-sufficiency and you can post things on social media and close it out with, but you know what? God's got this. You can do that. But see, here's the the danger of self-sufficiency. If we're not loving Jesus first and most, it means we're not engaged in a relationship with God. And so, therefore, we are basically doing life self-sufficiently on our own opinions of everything with some occasional feelings about God and some occasional catchphrases about God. We, we do our own thing, plus we kind of believe in God. And if a traumatic thing happens in our life, well, we increase the occasional feelings, we increase the catchphrases, but with that weapon of self-sufficiency in our hands, we still refuse to be still. We still don't cease striving. And so God interrupts this psalm. <laughs> he interrupts and says, stop. Just stop doing that. You know, just, just stop. Just, just lay your weapon down. Cease striving. Be still. It's okay. You, you can do it. So how do you do that? How do you be still? How do you cease striving? Well, we're going to answer how in just a moment, but first, let's answer why. Why should you be still? Why should you cease striving? Look what the psalmist says next. Cease striving and know that I am God. So God communicating directly through the psalmist now says, look, here's my quote. Give this to the people. They need to be still. They need to cease striving Because I am God. They need to know that I am God. That's why we cease striving. We cease striving because God is not hiding. God is is not hiding. God desires for you to know him. God, the one true living God, desires that you know him. Not just know about him, but actually know him. J.I. Packer said this, once you become aware that the main business that you are here for is to know God, most of life's problems fall into place of their own accord. So, do you have any problems right now in your life? Any problems? Would you like for those problems to somehow start making a little bit of sense? Would you like to know how, how those problems fit into the big picture of your life? 
If so, then be still and know God. It's, it's the main business of your life to know God. It's what you've been created for. Now, if you repent, if you turn to Jesus, if you begin to believe in him and trust in him and rely on him and cling to Jesus as your ultimate hope, that doesn't mean that suddenly all of those health issues in your life are just going to disappear. Turning to Jesus and, and knowing God doesn't mean that all of your family issues are suddenly going to clear up. It doesn't mean that, that all of the medical and, and social and political unrest in your country will suddenly just fade out by midnight that night. What it means is your heart and your mind and your soul will have the answer that they need the most. But that's, that's what it means to make the main business of your life knowing God. It means the main answer that you need is there. I was watching a, a TV show recently, and it's set during World War II. And there's a character that was really struggling with the war, really struggling with everything in their personal life. And they end up in a conversation where they, they basically said that, that God and, and church and religion, that they were a problem, not a help in the world. They didn't believe in those things at all. And then not longer, long after that, in, in the episode, they were begrudgingly in a church service. And as they sat and, and listened to the sermon, this sermon about how the grace of God has made a way for us to know him, you could just see on that character's face something change. Their facial expression changed. Their, their eyes changed. It was as if they heard this message of God's desire to pursue you with love and goodness and mercy. And they thought, man, this doesn't sound like a fairy tale. This, this sounds like it has value. This message has hope. If you're not a Christian, then we want you to know that God desires for you to know him. He has made a way for you to know him. It's, it's not just some, some flippant thing. God desires for you to lay your weapons down. He desires for you to cease striving, to cease striving from trying to be everything and fix everything and do everything and believe everything and experience everything because those are invitations that never end and they will never satisfy you. To turn to Jesus, to be still and know God, it means that, that you are beginning to function in a way that you were created to function. You were created to know God and you were created to only be satisfied in knowing him. It is your main business. And until that is your main business, your heart will be restless. Your mind will be restless. Your soul will be restless. We should be still because God is God and there is no other God. One song put it this way, God and God alone is fit to take the universe's throne. 
Let everything that lives reserve its truest praise for God and God alone. God and God alone is fit to take the throne of the universe, and he's the only one, and God and God alone is fit to take the universe of your throne, the throne of your heart. He's a good king. He's a good shepherd. And he desires to pursue you with goodness and loving kindness and peace and mercy all the days of your life. All of them. And then forever. Be still and know him. Cease striving and know him. Someone might be thinking, man, I'm tired of being still. Uh Uh-uh. I can't. I can't be still. Gosh, I I got things to do. I, I can't just sit at home and be still and try to be quiet in front of God. I gotta go places. I gotta I gotta do things. I can't just sit around waiting that maybe in my stillness God's gonna say something to me, that God's gonna speak. Well that's good because that's not what God's calling you to do. That's that's not what being still means. That's not what it means to, to cease striving. The invitation to be still, the the invitation to cease striving does not mean that you should go to a, a cabin up in the mountains and just hang out and hide out and just avoid everything that's happening in the world to ignore everything that's happening in the world to not be active in everything that's happening in the world that is the opposite of what the gospel says when we're called to be still it doesn't mean hey have nothing to do with the health crisis have nothing to do with social injustice have nothing to do with economic danger that's not what it means at all it simply means this that to be still means that you lean into all of those things with this steady confidence that God is God. You lean into all of those things. You are active in all of those things. You are prayerful in all of those things with this steady confidence that God is God and there is no other and He is holy, holy, holy and His will is unchangeable. And he is for you. And maybe even more than that, that his grace is sufficient. See, we're, we're convinced. We've got a list of about five things. And we're like, I'm not going to be happy. I'm not going to be content. I'm not going to feel better until these five things happen. I can tell you what's on my five, my five list right now. This shoulder feels weird preaching in this thing. Man, I'd love for that to be away. But see, what we do is we take those five things and we begin to say, no, I will not be happy until these things are answered. But see, when we say, God, your grace is sufficient, what we're saying is, God, you're sufficient. God, you're, you're sufficient for any moment. So that, that sounds religious and lofty. So how do we do that? Well, being still boils down to trusting be still and know that he is God be still and trust that he is God trust in the Lord Proverbs chapter 3 verse 5 says trust in the Lord with all of your heart 
That's the, the wise counsel of the king named Solomon. So notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, trust primarily in your family or in your friends or in your church. Trust primarily in your education, in your career, in your retirement account. Trust primarily in your favorite team or trust primarily in the president or trust primarily in the government or trust primarily in your country. He doesn't say that. Why? I mean, he's the king, right? I mean, he's known as the wisest king ever. One of the richest men that ever lived. I mean, why wouldn't Solomon, he's writing to his sons here, why wouldn't Solomon just say, hey boys, you know what? (laughs) Your dad's the king, you know? I'm the king. So, because I'm the king, and because I've had some experience, look, you just do what I tell you to do. You just do what I say. You just trust in me, and follow me. He didn't say that. Why? Because Solomon knew on his best day that he could still fail. It's true. We can look throughout history, and on their best day, the most loved president, the most revered king, the most respected queen, the most appreciated church leader, can fail and mess up. And guess what? Every single one of us on our best day can fail and make a bad decision. In case you haven't heard that in a while, let me repeat it. Every single one of us on our best day can make a bad decision. So what do we do? Should we just avoid all humans? Oh, I can't do anything right. I'm going to mess up today, or maybe I'm going to mess up today, so I'm just going to hide in the corner. No. That's the opposite of what we should do. And and generally speaking, we should be able to trust our family and our friends and our church and our government and our political leaders and everybody else. We should be able to trust them, generally speaking. They're not perfect, but we should be able to trust them. And you know what? We should be trustworthy people too. People should be able to trust us. We're not perfect, but our reputations really don't need to be, man, don't tell her because, man, it'll be all over town. Or, I don't know, man, don't share that with him because he has a way of twisting the story. Or, you know, when you're talking to them, you never really know which person you're talking to, which version of them is in the conversation. We don't need to be like that. George MacDonald said this, to be trusted is a greater compliment than being loved. But even as trustworthy as we may be, we are not perfect. That's why we cannot put our ultimate trust in human beings or in human philosophies or in human potential or in things that humans have built or in places that humans have established. Because humans are not perfect. Listen, I know my mom and dad, and I can trust my mom and dad. I can trust them to show up at my house with toilet paper or paper towels or barbecue from Carolina Barbecue in New Ellington. You know, I mean, I can trust my parents. But my parents aren't perfect in wisdom and perfect in love and perfect in power. But God is 
He's perfect in wisdom. He's perfect in love. He's perfect in power. He's perfect in energy. He's perfect in peace. He's perfect in grace. He's perfect in every way. And that's why Solomon, as a king, as a leader, writes to his boys, trust in the Lord. Trust in him because he is perfect. He cannot fail. In the middle of your chaos, you can have a heart and mind that is steady and sure and confident because you are believing in and trusting in the one who is fit to take the universe's throne. That's how we can be still. Be still and know the Lord. Be still and trust the Lord. But what does it look like in real life? I mean, these, these things sound good, but what does it look like in real life? Well, when it comes to being still and knowing that God is God, really when it comes to anything religious, our tendency is again to try to pull out that self-sufficiency weapon, to try to do it ourselves, you know, to try harder, to, to organize more, to simplify more, to protest more, to, to do more. Or if we're not doing more, sometimes we're demanding more. You know, we're, we're like, hey, these are the things that are wrong in life. God, I need you to fix all of these things in order for me to be happy. Bonnie McKernan is a wife and a mom, lives in northern Virginia. She says this, but that's not who God is. He is not a genie who merely takes away bad things and gives me good things. He is my good thing. That's, that's the challenge. It's, it's not what God does for us, what he accomplishes for us. It's him. He is our good thing. God is our good thing. Bonnie goes on. Resting in the power of Christ is infinitely more peaceful and invigorating and impactful than a thousand chaos-free days. See, that's what we want. We want chaos-free days. But she's saying resting in Christ is better than a thousand chaos-free days. She goes on. He is our rest. He is our peace within the chaos. He's the means and he's the end. What are you frustrated about right now? What's ticking you off that's happening in our country? What's ticking you off that's happening in your family? What has got you down and discouraged and in despair with any area of your life? Please know this, by the character and nature of who he is, the means and the end to whatever that is, is Jesus. There's not another means and another end. The means and the end is Jesus. He is the peace. He is the rest for whatever is. He's the answer for whatever's happening and whatever you're struggling with. He's the means and he's the end. So again, how, how do we do that? What does that look like on Monday morning? Well, Bonnie gives us nine things. I'm just going to use three. Uh, you can look online at the sermon notes. I'll, I'll put a link on to the rest of the article. You can see the other nine. But here's, here's just three of them, okay? First one goes like this. Before I gaze into a mirror or look at a screen or to a single thing of this world, I pray that he will show me his glory and goodness today 
that I will see it and that I will reflect it. Monday morning, there you go. Monday morning quarterback, that's what you do. You get up and you go, you know what? Before I look in the mirror, before I look at my smartphone, before I look at my iPad, before I look at the computer, before I look at the TV that's on the counter in the kitchen and watch the Today Show, no matter what, before I look at any of those things, I'm going to what? I am going to pray that God will show me his glory and his goodness and that I will see it and that I'll reflect on it. That's, that's how you be still. That's how you cease striving. Here's another one. As the world and the day get louder and louder, remember to stop and listen for the Spirit over the noise. Learn to recognize Him. Guess what? Things will get louder and louder. None of the loudness will disappear anytime soon. Pandemic or no pandemic, protest or no protest, it doesn't matter what's happening in the world. There's nothing new. It will always be loud. But when it is loud, we are to do what? Remember to stop and listen to the Spirit of God and that God would help us see and know that he is still the one, the only one, who can take the throne of the universe. One more. Don't let a single hour go by without asking God to sustain me. Not tomorrow, not next week, but right now. Set an alarm if I have to until it starts to come more naturally, like breathing. <laughs> like breathing. Being still and knowing that God is God is not something you can just do at summer camp. It's not something that you just do at a women's retreat or a men's breakfast. Being still and knowing that God is God, ceasing to strive and trusting in the Lord, it's like breathing. It's like part of who you are. I saw a fantastic picture of this, or heard a fantastic picture of this, this week from Richard Foster. Basically, he says that if we can learn how to be still and cease striving and, and know that God really is God, what will happen is that we will end up with a portable sanctuary of the heart. <laughs> that is so good. A portable sanctuary of the heart. I mean, that's, that's a picture, right? Being still means that if you can't physically be here in this sanctuary or at your church or at your worship center, wherever it is you normally attend, if you can't physically be there, being still and knowing that God is God means that you have a portable sanctuary of your heart. That's fantastic. I mean, own that. Love that. Decorate your portable sanctuary. Put some stained glass windows in there. Put some beveled diamond windows in there put some skylight windows don't put any windows in there but decorate your sanctuary and take your portable sanctuary everywhere you go take it with you when you go into the kitchen take it with you when you go into the office at work take it with you when you go to the doctor's office take it into the grocery store take it anywhere and everywhere that you go and when you do something really cool happens Rather than you going to disturb the peace of other people, your peace actually disturbs other people. This is how Marshall Siegel put it. I love it. God wants our inner peace to disturb the world, leaving others wondering how we could possibly enjoy emotional stability and rest in the midst of what we're suffering or enduring. 
Let me ask you something. You, you want to disturb somebody? You been looking for that chance? Man, I want to disturb somebody. I want to I wanna interrupt somebody. Here's your chance. Be still and know that God is God and let your peace in God disrupt the world. <laughs> That's a fantastic picture. Take, take your portable sanctuary and let the peace of being still in God disrupt your family, disrupt your friendships, disrupt this community in all the right ways. And how is it that being still in God has that kind of impact? How can being still and knowing God have the kind of impact that can disrupt the world? That's that's what we say about the disciples, right? Here's a, a few guys from the Middle East who followed Jesus and turned the world upside down. So how can our peace in God disrupt the world? How can it be that powerful? Listen to how God closes out his thought. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. That's something, right? Like nobody at your cookout yesterday gets to say that. It's like it's, it's only God. Only God gets to say, I will be exalted among all the nations. I will be exalted among the whole earth. The full and final voice over every pandemic, over every protest, over every plague, over every political system, over every politician, over every sickness, over every government, over every nation, over every person, the full and final voice is the Most High God. The one who says, I am that I am. I am who I am. I am. Nobody at your cookout gets to say that. Just God. See, the reason our peace in God has so much power is because God has so much power. One day, everyone will lay their weapons at the feet of God. One day, everyone will cease striving with God. One day, everyone will be still and everyone will know that God is God and there is no other. Only he is fit to take the universe's throne. That's why we need to be still and know that he is God. If you've surrendered your life to Jesus, if you've found the the peace that passes all understanding, that means that right now today, in the middle of everything that's happening in the world, you can be steady and confident in God. You can be still. You can cease striving because you know He is the only one fit to take the throne. In September 1944, 
the German military launched a operation known as Operation Haudigan. It was an expedition that was supposed to establish a station on a, a group of islands that sit about 400 miles north of Norway. The expedition was, was there. They were working, but it was top secret. So much so that when the Nazi government fell, they were kind of forgotten about. They were accidentally abandoned up there on those islands. Their last communication was in May of 1945. They found out that the war had ended, but there was no contact after that. They were left alone. For four months, they faced sub-zero temperatures and constant attacks from polar bears. And the only way they were found, the only way they were rescued, was because some Norwegians heard one of their radio distress calls. And they were found and they were rescued. The way it is communicated is that when those German soldiers laid down their weapons after they had been rescued, they were the last German soldiers to surrender in World War II. And they were so happy to be rescued that they didn't even fight. <laughs> they surrendered happily. In fact, it's reported they surrendered so happily that they made a feast for their captors. They were celebrating that they had been rescued. They laid their weapons down because they were happy to cease striving. This weekend we celebrate our freedom as a nation. Our freedom to, to be the people we are. But as Christians... We can celebrate every day the reality that at any given moment we can be still, we can know that our God is God, we can lay down our weapon of self-sufficiency or any other weapons, we can cease striving, and we can rest in the Lord. How? And, and maybe more importantly, Why? Because he's the only one fit to take the universe's throne. And if that's true, and if we know him, and we've surrendered to Jesus, that means that right now, you are deeply, deeply, undeniably, eternally free. Free. So take your freedom in Christ today and be still. Cease striving. Be still and know that He is God.